In this episode of Between the Lines, IDS Director Melissa Leach interviews leading development policy analyst and IDS Emeritus Fellow Raphael Koplinski, author of the book Sustainable Futures, An Agenda for Action. The book explores the determinants and character of the ongoing environmental, economic, social and political crises and seeks to identify a roadmap for building a more sustainable world. So a very, very warm welcome to you, Rafi. Um, it's lovely to have the chance to have this conversation and it's one that's incredibly relevant to me having worked for most of my career also on sustainability and sustainable development, although often from slightly different perspectives, especially through the work I've done through the Step Centre and on the politics of green transformations. So a lot of cross cuts between your concerns in this book and the things that have concerned me and that indeed concern many of us at IDS at the moment. So I wonder if we could begin. Um, can you tell us what made you decide to write this book and why is it quite so relevant at this moment? Okay, why did I write this book? Uh, in 2018, I was on holiday. It was in the middle of the Trump uh, saga in the USA. We'd voted for Brexit in the UK. Uh, the political trajectory didn't look one which I was comfortable with. Uh, most people around me were complaining and talking about the end of the world as we knew it. And I thought, you know what, uh, let's try and be positive. Of course, we can look at all these things and feel despairing, but at the same time, there are real opportunities there and there are grounds for optimism. So the function of my book, both for me as a personal exercise and also as a, con uh, a responsible citizen, was to try and lay out an agenda to create a more sustainable world. Absolutely. Um, and that could not be more important at this, this point. So what do you argue? Can you just give us in a, in a nutshell, a really quick summary of your, 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 your kind of big, big thesis in the book? Okay, we're in the midst of three overlapping crises. The first one is the crisis in the economic realm, uh, where despite the appearance of recovery, much of the world is worse off now than it was in 2008. The second crisis is the crisis in politics and governance, the erosion of democracy, the erosion of participation, uh, and the perversion of democratic processes. And the third one, which needs no uh, detailed specification, of course, is the environmental crisis. They overlap. Is that merely a coincidence or not? And the book which I've written, drawing on a body of theory we can talk about later on called Techno-Economic Paradigms, argues that much of this overlap uh, is structurally related. The crisis in the economy is related to the crisis in politics and society. The crisis in politics society is related to the crisis in the environment. And these three areas of crises interact and feed into each other. I, the book tries to see this through the lens of a theory of technomic paradigms, and we can talk about that later on, uh, this is a theoretical structure which goes back to the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution in the early 18th century. The structural crisis we now experience is the fourth crisis we've experienced since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And more importantly, we see ourselves emerging into a new, what we call a long wave of interrelated social, political, economic and environmental uh, um, developments. Uh, and the book then asks the question, uh, the new wave, which we call the information and communications technology wave, has both threat, 
it can be used for malign purposes, some of which are extremely terrifying, but it also has opportunity. So the buzzword around at the one at the moment is the word directionality. How can we impart directionality to the new wave we're in so that it simultaneously builds economic, social and environmental sustainability? Okay, that's that's great. And I think this um, these arguments about interconnections are actually really important. But I'd like to backtrack just a little bit because, um, Rafi, thinking about your own personal and professional experience at IDS and at Sprue, I think you've always been incredibly well known as a top development economist and as somebody who worked on innovation, um, on technology, um, on global value chains and so on. Environment and sustainability, not so much. And yet this is fundamentally a book about sustainability. So I wonder if you could just say a little bit more about where you see, and perhaps you elaborate the theory a little bit more as well, where you see the new theoretical framework that you're offering, which really comes more from that um, economics of innovation world, offering something really different to the sustainability debate. Because I think that's that's actually the, the the crux of the matter, certainly for me as a sustainability analyst. What does it bring that's that's different that we need to know that that is different from most of the sustainability talk, which focuses more narrowly on environment? Good. Uh, I have to backtrack a bit. Uh, I came to Britain as a political refugee from South Africa in the in the late 1960s. So I come from a, a tradition of uh, politics, uh, social awareness and activism. Uh, I came to Sussex, uh, did my MA at the university, apparently as an economist, but my knowledge of economics is, I'm thankfully uh, rather thin, although I think I've got some of the key concepts. Uh, and so politics and economics is really, they've been central to my intellectual development over the years. I spent many decades, four, four more, working both theoretically and also in the IDS tradition as a practitioner advising, in inverted commas, the word advising, governments, civil society organizations, trade unions, and many firms on what was required to develop a sustainable economic and social and social future. But increasingly, uh, it became apparent to me that the tools we were using to think about sustainability uh, no longer functioned partly because the paradigm, we'll talk about this later on, no longer worked, uh, but also because the idea of sustainability itself has to be seen in a wide context. And hiding in your introduction to this question, Melissa, was the ellipsis between sustainability and environmental sustainability. And for many of us, we think of sustainability as we have historically thought of it as being an environmental agenda. Of course, with the sustainable development goals, we now realize that there's an important social dimension to sustainability as well. But a core part of the book and my belief is that these three elements of sustainability, the environment, the economy, governance society, cannot be disconnected. They cannot be disconnected both because they cover the totality of human existence, but also because they're structurally interrelated. Could you talk a little bit more about the techno-economic paradigms, these notions of long waves that you, you bring to bear, um, and particularly the emphasis there on what you refer to as heartland technologies. What do you mean by this and why are they, they so very critical to these regimes? 
let's first talk the theory and then we can talk an example of the interactions between the three domains of sustainability. The idea of long waves uh, goes back to the late 19th century, popularized by Schumpeter, the great Austrian economist, drawing on the work of a Russian minister of agriculture in the early 20th century, Kondratiev. And they observed a, a series of waves. I mean, that's a very contentious argument now because academics always just uh, concern themselves with how many angels sit on the head of a pin. So are they waves or surges or paradigms? And uh, unfortunately, the academic minutiae get in the way of understanding that since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we can broadly see four completed and now a fifth evolving long period in which a cluster of interactions between key technologies, I'll talk a bit about that, heart and technologies, forms of economic organization, ways of living, value systems, forms of governance, and the human interaction with the environment, all clustered together, approximately of 50 or 60 years, but the time part of that isn't terribly important. Uh, they go through a, uh, the heartland technology, which I'll talk about, is invented. It takes off slowly. Uh, the business community then sees the potential. They move into it with extraordinary frenzy. There's often a financial crisis at the end of that frenzy. The system hiccups, and then the new paradigm is distributed, deployed right through the economic and social and political system. So what are these four completed paradigms? Each one, incidentally, has with it a dominant technology and an infrastructure which allows this technology to be exploited to increasingly wide markets. So we begin with water power in the early 18th century and canals, which take production from an immediate locale to a wider community. Then at the end of the 18th century, the introduction of steam power vastly augments productivity. It also gives us railways, and railways takes the market from the areas which were served by canals to a much wider national agenda. Followed in the third wave by the development of heavy engineering, shipping, telegraphy, and electricity, which moves the arena for production and for the expansion of the wave in the late 19th century from the national level to the international level. And that gives us the first wave of internationalization at the end of the 19th century. At the end of the 19th century, the world was as integrated economically as it was at the end of the 20th century, but in a very different way. Now, the dominant paradigm in the 20th century is what we call mass production. The technology here isn't so much a physical technology, although it has physical attributes, it's essentially a form of organization which says, let's produce on a very large scale and we can achieve the economic gains by standardizing. Henry Ford, the inventor of mass production said, you can have a Model T Ford in any color you like as long as it's black. Had the global economy not expanded in the late 20th century, this paradigm would have exhausted itself in the mid 1970s and early 1980s. And we can talk about the nature of that exhaustion if you want later on. But essentially what globalization did, particularly globalization through global value chains, was it extended the life of the mass production paradigm by making mass production work 
no longer on the scale of Europe or North America, Japan, the rich countries, it moved global uh, mass production to the international level. And essentially this mass production paradigm had a lifespan of 90, perhaps 100 years, beginning with the invention of the Model T Ford in 1908 and showing its exhaustive character in the great financial crisis of 2008. From the late 19th century, uh, 20th century, we get the emergence of the new wave, which is information and communications technology. And this is distinctive because the same technology which enhances productivity also gives you infrastructure. In water power, you had a technology which gave you energy to production, and then you had canals as two distinct complementary developments in the technology. ICTs, the information communications technology, fuses both productivity enhancement and infrastructure. So essentially the idea of these heartland technology driving waves was elaborated at Spru uh, from the 1970s, 1980s and picked up in the wonderfully creative way by one of the really original thinkers of the contemporary period who's Carlotta Perez. They distinguish four types of technological changes, incremental change, which happens on a regular basis. There's a radical change like synthetic textiles compared to uh, natural textiles or nuclear power compared to thermal power. And then there are changes in systems, which are technologies like chemicals, which have application across a range of different sectors. However, the heartland technologies are revolutionary technologies, and they're revolutionary because they have four distinctive attributes. Firstly, they fundamentally improve production and the availability of goods. They generally are novel technologies. Secondly, uh, they have descending price. They get cheaper and cheaper. Thirdly, they're essentially in unlimited supply. But fourthly, and this is critical, they have applications across the range of economic and social activities. And why I'm emphasizing this point is that, and I'm making, I suppose, an uh, academic point to some extent here, the fixation with the fourth industrial revolution combines a series of technologies like biotechnology, uh, which are essentially systems technologies. They have application across a number of systems and they conflate that together with ICTs. And that's wrong because ICTs really are a technology, if you think of the criteria of having application across the full range of economic and social activities, we couldn't have green technologies without ICTs. We wouldn't have developed a response to COVID without ICTs. We wouldn't have had new ways of living. We wouldn't have new generators of civil society interaction. We wouldn't have new productive technologies without this pervasive heartland technology. So can you tell us a little bit more about, I mean, as, as I picked it up, a central argument of the book is that the mass production regime um, has, has been very damaging for these other aspects of sustainability, the environmental and, and indeed the social. Um, and yet there is greater hope and optimism, as you put it, um, with ICTs. And I wonder if you could just give us a couple of illustrations really, which, which kind of drive home that big distinction that you make. 
but also perhaps to reflect a little bit, as you do in the book, on the fact that technologies are always a matter of political choice and the ways they're used. And even with something like ICTs, there are some applications that are going to be potentially positive for people and for environment, but others that might actually be quite dangerous. So can you just give us a little bit more, bit more texture to the things you're saying about mass production and, and ICTs and, and the, the, the optimism they might offer us, but maybe perhaps ways one would temper that too. Uh, let's try and separate these two discussions. Now, the first one being about uh, the, degra the degradation of mass production. And I'll use that to show the interactions between the economy uh, and society, and also between economy, society, and the environment. Let's take that as one subject. We can come later on to the question of directionality. How do we impart directionality to the new wave? As I mentioned earlier on, each of these waves has a slow growth in the beginning. It then has some rapid uh, frenzy of financial speculation. We get uh, stock market collapse of 1929, we get the dot-com bubble bursting in 1988, 1999. And then after this collapse, we get the full deployment to society. So the Second World War was the transformative uh, event in the deployment of mass production. The ideas of Henry Ford, which had trickled through to a number of sectors in the 20s and 1930s, found the expression in the ramping up of military production during the Second World War, an extraordinary event which incidentally brought women into the labor force uh, in many of the rich countries. There's a fantastic film called Rosie the Riveter of how women worked in factories during the Second World War, were critical to the war effort. When the men came back, they wanted their jobs back and suddenly women were moved back into the home. They were shown in advertisements of long flowing dresses, all white incidentally, smoking Virginia Slim cigarettes and using home automation, the technologies produced by mass production. Now that deployment of mass production beyond military to the society at large led to what we call the golden age between 1950 and 1975. The world economy, and that includes the developing countries, grew more rapidly in those two and a half decades than any other period of history. From the mid-1960s and accelerating during the 1970s, the productivity gains of the application of mass production began to wear off. It still had led to an increasing productivity, but the, the, the significance of that increase began to tail off, and economists refer to this as diminishing marginal productivity. Related to that, the mass production paradigm was an automobilization paradigm. It depended on suburbanization, mass consumption in the automobile. And during the 1970s, the oil powers realized their political power and economic power, which came from their ability to, uh, to hold back oil. So the 1970s were a period of what economists call stagflation, both inflation and economic stagnation. And if you look at the profitability of American firms, you can see this follows the evolution of the Second World War, the declining productivity, the oil hikes of the 1970s, and the collapse of profitability in America. So what happens to the corporate sector? Ah, there's an alternative if our productivity driver has run out of steam, and that's to exploit cheap labor. And hence the significance of export-oriented industrialization, 
global value chains, the growth of China. This was capital's response to the declining productivity of mass production. So here we see a link between what happens globally and the crisis of the paradigm itself. More importantly, or perhaps as important, as important, the plutocracy, the rich grab the reins of power in the late 1970s. We have Thatcher, we have Reagan. And here we have a problem for capitalism, which is, do we increase taxation as a way of creating demand for mass production machine? Or do we cut taxation in the interests of the rich? And the austerity agenda, the neoliberal paradigm, really followed directly from the exhaustion of mass production. It provides a global arena for the exploitation of cheap labor, and it also creates political conditions for the rise of populism two decades later, because the imp imposition of austerity policies leads to growing uh, uh, absolute poverty in many rich countries, but more important than absolute poverty is growing inequality. Because what the evidence shows, and here the work of Richard Wilkinson, formerly of Sussex, and his partner, Kate Piquette, are very important, is that if you look at all the important indicators which we define as goods, which is life expectancy, uh, infant mortality rates, suicide, divorce, participation in civil society, feeling belonging, uh, Wilkinson and Pickett looked at the um, association between these indicators and the average standard of living. Was it true that the richer the country, the better the development indicators? And they found virtually no relationship. The key relationship between the extent of good development outcomes was uh, a function of the degree of equality. The more unequal the society, the worse these indicators are. And for me, the best example of this is air rage. The more classes there are in an airplane, the greater the degree of air rage. The greater the extent of economy passengers entering from first class through business class to economy, the greater the degree of air rage. And significantly, it's not only air rage from the people in the economy class to those in business and first classes, it's also rage from first class and business class passengers to economy class passengers. So here we see a link between the decay of mass production, the rise of austerity, the creation of the Washington agenda, globalization, mm -hmm. and the atrophy of the social and political systems in the rich countries. And then finally, of course, this leads to mass exclusion in many parts of the developing countries, environmental degradation, mass migration, and we get all the elements which gives us Donald Trump and the rise of populism in Europe. You are listening to the Between the Lines podcast from the Institute of Development Studies. Um, you also just now alluded to um, the situation in low-income countries, and of course your your book is very much and admittedly focused on the story of high income and to some extent middle income countries. But um, I think it's fair to say that, well, much of what you say is highly relevant to development. Firstly, because development as we think about it these days and certainly in the SDGs is not something that only happens in so-called developing countries. It's about progressive change, environmental, social, political, economic for everyone everywhere. And in that sense, your book, 
um, is, does speak to everywhere and to all countries. But there may also be some particularities um, about the situation of those lower income settings, perhaps particularly those in Africa, which I know you, you know well and, and, and have worked in and thought about globalization and poverty and inequality in relation to. Um, which, which may be a bit different. So I just wonder if you could just quite briefly um, reflect on whether, whether the story you tell in this book, is there a different story that would need to be told for, for, for Africa or for South Asia perhaps? Or is it a variation on the same themes that you've elaborated? My book is essentially describes the indirect consequences for developing countries uh, of the deg degradation of mass production and the opportunities for information communications technology. So in recent work with my colleague in South Africa, Erika Kramer Mbula, uh, we've begun to extend this discussion from focusing on the direct implications for the rich countries to the direct implications for the developing countries. Two things stand out uh, to help us or to inform us uh, 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 and describe a situation which we refer to as the crisis in development policy uh, agendas. Firstly, the possibilities of other developing countries following the China East Asian route uh, in growing through export oriented industrialization are basically eroded, partly by the very success of China and its neighboring countries, but also because with the transition from mass production to ICT wave, and I talk about this in my book, production and consumption are coming closer together. We are no longer gonna be in a world where predominantly production occurs in China and consumption occurs in America, North America. Production and consumption are moving closer together, not because of political uh, protectionism, but because it just makes economic sense as well. The second crisis for developing countries is that mass production, both in its global expression and individual countries, is capital intensive and centralizing. So if you look at the proportion of livelihoods outside of agriculture in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, livelihoods earned in the informal sector, more than 70% of the population in these countries earn their livelihoods outside of the formal sector. There is no hope of the mass production, formal sector-driven model producing the jobs and the incomes required to meet the development challenge. Danny Roderick has written this uh, uh, insightfully with respect to the declining employment with the expansion of manufacturing. So the question then is, if the development agenda, the development strategy agenda is, is essentially bankrupt, what are the opportunities with the idea of the ICT wave in mind? What are the opportunities open to give directionality with the, in, the, in low income developing countries? Three points. Firstly, there is enormous entrepreneurial energy in the informal sector. Uh, you see this particularly in Africa in the young informal sector. And I'm going to make the number up, but there's something like 15,000 Kenyans writing essays for students in rich countries and selling them over the web. It's an extraordinary, extraordinary development. Most of these essays are very low quality, incidentally, they've been analyzed, but this amazing entrepreneurial energy you see in West Africa and East Africa, of course, in Southeast Asia and in Latin America as well. So what can be done to promote the dynamism of the informal sector, 
And here there are a number of policy tools which we can draw on in the past, the use of clusters, for example, and various uh, other policy tools to promote the development of the informal sector. So that's directionality number one. Directionality number two is the direct application of ICTs to meet the needs of poor people and those living in, in distant areas. Delivering medicines by drones in Rwanda and Ghana, but enormous potential, if you think about it, for meeting the needs of the agricultural sector. There are people working in this area, and it's not something I've examined in great depth, but it's my perception that potential of ICT use to help in a process transforming the livelihoods of poor and marginalized people is really substantial. This is a real opportunity and provides scope for leapfrogging. Think of the phones uh, the, or mobile money. These were technologies which found much greater expression in developing countries than they did in developed countries. And then finally, as mass production's global economy begins to degrade, as we move from a world where China no longer produces for consumption in North America, we're simultaneously seeing a very rapid growth in trade between developing countries. Mm. And that has very important implications. When we produce products for high-income consumers, and these are the good parts of global value chains, we require value chains which don't exploit child labor, uh, which uh, pay decent wages. And while these are all good things, many poor people in developing countries can't participate in these value chains. These value chains are driven by the demands of people like you and myself for goods with good social and economic environmental provenance. When trade moves from rich countries to poor countries, these uh, value chain conditioning attributes are diminished and there's more scope and it's evidenced for participation in developing countries. And then finally, uh, South South trade in machinery and technology is very important because much of the machinery and technology in developing countries comes from the rich countries, is capital intensive, very expensive to acquire, difficult to maintain. We have evidence that technology coming from other developing countries is more labor intensive, gives more scope for female headed entrepreneurs, uh, uh, businesses, uh, more scope for repairability, and various other things. So we have unmet potential. And in each of the previous transitioning waves, the geographical center moved first from Britain to the continent, from the continent to Europe, from Europe to North Asia. So we can see the possibility of the geographical center of the new ICT waves, not moving entirely away from the rich countries, but giving us robust new opportunities in developing countries. Yeah. That's a great image of a reverse globalization, or at least not of the end of globalization, but of new, new patterns and forms. I do just have to push you on one point really about directionality, um, which is I think an extraordinarily important concept, because surely the optimism around ICTs in particular needs to be tempered or at least put in the context of different political directions. I mean, I might come back on those positive examples you've just given us and say, what about digital divides? Are these, are these technologies going to be accessible to everybody or are we gonna see new patterns of marginalization as some people are in and some are out, including over simple things like mobile phone use? 
What about concentration? Aren't we going to see the same kinds of patterns of concentration around, say, big agri-tech firms getting hold of the tools for smart farming and drone distributed fertilizers? as we've seen in the age of mass production of chemicals? Or what about privacy and surveillance? Isn't the downside of, of, of distributed drones a lack of privacy, um, a, a, a buying into a kind of, kind of surveillance society, which is going to be the opposite of, of the, the, more, the more socially sustainable world that your, the optimistic sides of your books paint to us? So just, just a little bit, how, how do you counter these these accusations about the dark side, which is, I think, a phrase you use in the book. Yes, a very important question. Just a small footnote. The only part I depart from what you're from what I'm what you're saying, which I think is really important, is the digital divide associated with lack of access to uh, digital technologies. Uh, we are now see one and at least one and two or three um, massive deployment of low altitude satellites. Uh, Bezos has got one, Musk has got one, and the UK and uh, Indian firm are working on one. So I think access to the internet is going to be universal and incredibly cheap for virtually all of the world's population in a very short time horizon. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, underplay the significance uh, of this collapse of the digital divide, insofar as we're talking about access to uh, communication in the World Wide Web. But your substantive point, I absolutely agree with, and it's critical. Uh, the most chilling, chilling uh, um, YouTube uh, I've ever seen uh, is a YouTube of a, um, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur in front of a cheering audience uh, describing how they're producing drones, which for $25 million can be unleashed en masse from an aeroplane. And these uh, little drones, very small, will be programmed to recognize individual faces or the faces of men or women or young people or old people and will hunt them out and explode two grams of explosive within 10 centimeters of the forehead and blow the brain out of the person who's being hunted. It is, it is truly, truly malicious, malign, and evil. But it is one of the possibilities of the application of ICTs. So, you know, the dark side is with us. It's used to uh, increase surveillance, uh, and we have to fight that. And then that leads to the question, you know, what do we do about it? So your book subtitle is An Agenda for Action. And I wonder if you could just summarize what, what is your agenda? What is, what is this agenda? And then I want to ask a little bit more about who's going to take it forward and implement it, especially in the face of, of power. So what's, what's the agenda? Okay, I identify five major symbiotic, that's important, uh, policy agendas, because I believe that we need a systemic approach to policies to lead to the deployment of the mass production paradigm. Firstly, we have to shift the financial sector away from the casino economy and gambling to promote the development and deployment of technologies in the productive sector, and in particular, in the green sector. This is a non-trivial problem, because the financial sector has become incredibly important in contemporary capitalism and is corrosive of 
long-term innovation and development and is one of the most important factors leading to unequalization. Agenda number one. Agenda number two, we have to do something about the power of the plutocracy to define what's normal. So we're told, for example, don't increase social security for people at the bottom of the income profile because you'll reduce the incentive to work. We're also told don't put taxes on the incomes of the rich because if you put taxes on the incomes of the rich, you'll reduce their incentive to work harder. It's completely crazy. And things we take for normal of what constitutes normality uh, really are created. They're socially created. And in my book, I describe particularly a group of American, uh, uh, let's call them right-wing plutocrats, who set out from the early 1980s to change the agenda in America and to erode the power of the large state, to erode the power of states to raise taxation. And so we have, think of the power of the Murdoch press, which controls information uh, uh, deployment to uh, control our views of normality, of, of uh, our values, uh, through not just the rich countries, but the poor countries as well. So that's the second policy agenda. The third one, and this is an absolute no-brainer, I didn't make it first because I don't want this to be the whole agenda, is the green agenda. And that green is not a cost on production. Green is also an opportunity. And we move away from the craziness of the measurement of gross domestic product, which both counts the creation of pollution as a contribution of gross domestic product and cleaning up the pollution as, the, as a contribution to gross domestic product. So we need a green economy, but critically ICTs are central. We cannot have an effective green economy without ICTs. The fourth one is the devolution, well, both the, the evolution of governance to an international level for the environment, for taxation, and for other areas, but also the devolution of government away from the central state towards the local state and away from the local state to the locality. So localism, municipalization, the bottom-up control uh, of, uh, of expenditures and, uh, and to some extent uh, income generation is the fourth agenda. And finally, development. Because the development we're talking about, the book talks about what's good for the rich countries. What's good for the rich countries is beneficial development in developing countries. We cannot meet the climate agenda without the full participation of the developing countries. We cannot stop migration without an increase in the security uh, of livelihoods in developing countries. So these five issues, which I talk mm -hmm. about, I spell out in some detail, for me are necessarily synergistic. I would agree with all of those as being priorities, but surely the, the, the snag is that all of them, perhaps with the exception of the last around developing countries, um, rely on challenging um, the power of those who currently maintain the status quo and benefit enormously from it. Those who are at the top of our mass production, financialized capitalism pyramids, and um, probably don't want to see those toppled or dug away at in the way that your, your agenda would, would do quite thoroughly. So, um, Rafi, I wonder if you could just finish by offering any reflections on how this is to come about 
um, against the quite fundamental challenge of power relations that would seem to be stacked often in the opposite directions to, to the agenda that you're suggesting. But here, uh, historical insight's important. And Carlotta Perez is just finishing the second of her seminal books, which is to show in how in each of the previous revolutions and the change from one paradigm to another, you had reactionary forces. They were reactionary either because it was against their interests, they were fetters, or because they were blinders, they were blinkers, which made it impossible for them to see the opportunities for the future. So I certainly don't underestimate the task. However, we have to build coalitions as well also as confronting the power uh, of the rich. And here's, I suppose, the final point about coalitions. It's the state alone can never achieve this transformation. The private sector has a critical role to play. I mean, the speed of diffusion of renewable technologies is just so impressive, driven by the private sector. But the private sector on its own also cannot meet that the uh, enormity of the challenge. So we have to find a way of developing these coalitions between the state and the private sector and between different parts of the private sector and between different political groupings. And here, there are three instruments which uh, are important, which help us understand how pace of change can be speeded up. Firstly, the private sector will respond to regulations. You cannot pollute. You cannot import products, which are uh, toys, which have got lead paint on, uh, even if you want to. Secondly, there's the question of incentives. And at the moment, we're taxing labor when we're short of employment, and we're not taxing the environment when our overuse of materials is destroying the environment. Tax incentives are an important component of the switch to a more sustainable world. And here, if we look at the UK, we can see that the incentives are focused in exactly the wrong direction. Take, for example, the proportion of government uh, revenue, which comes from different sources. Taxes on income make up 31% of government revenue. Taxes on labor, national insurance, make up 22%. Corporate taxes only make up surprisingly 9%. Taxes on petroleum are 5%. And here's the important point. All of the taxes on the environment, on transport, on landfill, on climate change, on air transport, are only 1.4% of total UK taxation. So taxes on the environment are one fifteenth of taxes on labor, and yet we try to encourage employment and discourage the use of environmentally harming materials, and we're doing exactly the wrong thing. And then, of course, the third part of this triad is the power of civil society. Mm -hmm. And we see that in operation at the moment. The private sector will be influenced by regulations, what they can and can't do. There will be incentives which steer them in political, in particular directions. But Melissa, you, me, all the people listening to this podcast and those not listening to this podcast all have a role to play in holding both the private sector and the state to account. It's an incredibly difficult task. The coalitions will often span unthinkable terrains. They will be fragile and they will be dynamic. But without these coalitions, we cannot develop the momentum. But let's not throw up the hands. 
The same thing could be said about the 1890s in America, about earlier periods in Europe and in Britain. And in each case, there were people saying it can't be done. It can be done, but it's not going to happen without purposeful action. And we are all participants. We are social actors and we are part of that story. Rafi, thank you so much. Um, and I think that conclusion that it's about that long-standing triad in development, it's states, it's markets, it's society, but also that really vital message that this is global, but it's also local. It's top down and bottom up, and it involves all of us as, as citizens, as actors in many roles that we play. I think a key moment of, of optimism and possibility, especially in this moment that we're often talking about around post-COVID, post-pandemic transformations and the opportunity to recast development um, in some ways that can take us forward in these vital directions in the face of the challenges that are up against us all. So thank you enormously. I recommend everybody to read this book. It covers a vast scope, as you will have gathered from this conversation. Um, and it's incredibly good food for thought and indeed for action, as Rafi's very much made clear to us today. Thank you. And thank you, Melissa, to the IDS and you for having helped me have such a stimulating life. Also the sense that one was creating and trying to make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at between the lines at ids.ac.uk. 